0: Here is a quick recap of part one. Ian Brady and Myra Hindley met while working together at Millwood's merchandising company. They committed the murder of 16-year-old Pauline Reed on the 12th of July 1963. Four months later, the 23rd of November 1963, they murdered 12-year-old John Kilbright. They drove both victims to Saddleworth Moor, where they killed them and buried them. Police were investigating both disappearances, and there was a large amount of media interest in both, but the two cases had not been linked. The families of Pauline and John were doing everything they could to find them, organising their own searches and door knocks. Brady and Hindley visited them more often on what they called reconnaissance trips. They had started taking what they called souvenirs, photographs of themselves standing on the graves, which were put into albums. To everyone else, the photos blended in with other pictures of holidays and family gatherings. Only Brady and Hindley knew the secret. Shortly after Pauline Reed's murder, Brady bought Hindley a record, the theme song to the Legion's Last Patrol by Ken Thorne and his orchestra. The morning of John Kilbride's murder, Brady bought her the record 24 Hours from Tulsa by Gene Pitney. Brady called these anniversary gifts for the anniversary of their perfect crimes if either of them hummed the songs it would be a private reference to the murders it was now the 16th of june 1964 seven months after the murder of john kilbride brady had told hindley he was ready to do another one and he gave her another anniversary gift it's over by roy orbison That evening of June 16th 1964 Hindley hopped in her new car A Morris Mini Traveller two-door station wagon She drove to Brady's house on Westmoreland Street Stopping on the way to put on her black wig She arrived at 7.30pm Brady was waiting outside for her He jumped in the back seat And told Hindley he would tap on the glass divider Between the front and back To indicate a potential victim This time they didn't travel far they didn't even get out of Westmoreland Street. There were several children out playing. Brady spotted one on his own and tapped on the glass divider. Hindley pulled up next to the boy and wound down her window. The boy was 12 year old Keith Bennett. He had turned 12 only four days earlier. He lived at 29 Eston Street with his mother Winnie, his stepfather Jimmy Johnson, and five younger brothers and sisters. Keith's stepsister Susan was closest in age to him and they went everywhere together. Like John Kilbride, Keith loved going to the cinema and would often ask for money from his mother so he and Susan could go. Keith's youngest sister Margaret, who was three, adored him and followed him around everywhere. He loved playing football with his brother Alan and they had painted goalposts on a brick wall at the end of their street. Keith's mother Winnie separated from his father when he was young and married Jimmy in 1961. Keith had a good relationship with Jimmy and called him dad. Physically, Keith was small for his age. He had sandy brown hair and wore glasses as he suffered from acute short-sightedness. Here is a quote from Winnie talking about Keith. There was no harm in him. He enjoyed life and was very interested in nature. He used to pick up leaves and caterpillars and bring them home, and he collected coins. The day of his birthday, he participated in a school swimming gala where he swam the length of the old Victorian baths for the first time, winning a certificate. Later that day, he accidentally dropped his glasses and broke one of the lenses. Winnie said she would fix his glasses, but still hadn't gotten around to it by June 16th. Winnie arranged for the children to spend that night, June 16th 1964, at their grandmother's house while she went to the 8pm bingo session. Keith's grandmother lived in Morton Street, which was known in the neighbourhood as The Concrete, since the ground was flat, while the rest of the streets were cobbled. It was a popular street for children, as it was much easier to ride bikes and scooters. Morton Street was located only three streets away from Westmoreland Street. A few minutes before 7.30pm, Winnie left her house with Keith. The other children were already at their grandmother's house. Keith got ahead of Winnie, who was struggling to keep up. She was only a few weeks away from giving birth. Keith started chasing after some girls from school he knew and Winnie yelled at him to be careful. Keith turned around and smiled at her. He kept on walking and crossed Stockport Road. Winnie kept a vigilant eye on him as she was concerned he wouldn't be able to see cars coming without his glasses. When he crossed the road safely, he turned and waved at his mother before heading down a side street which would take him to Westmoreland Street on the way to his grandmother's. When Hindley rolled down her window, she looked at Keith with a smile and asked if he would mind helping her carry some boxes from an off-license store. Keith immediately looked at the back seat where Brady was sitting. Sensing Keith's confusion, Hindley said Brady was there to help carry boxes too. Keith thought about it for a moment and ended up agreeing. He got into the front passenger seat and Hindley drove off. But they didn't get very far before Brady told her to stop. When Hindley pulled over, Brady asked Keith to join him in the back seat. Keith agreed, and Brady started telling him a story about Hindley losing a glove. He said the glove was of great sentimental value to her, and she lost it near Greenfield. Brady told Keith they would really appreciate it if he would help them look for it. Keith agreed. When they reached the moor, Brady told Keith to walk with him so they could start looking for the glove. Brady had a new addition this visit. His camera. Keith followed Brady on the moor, and Hindley grabbed a pair of binoculars before locking the car and walking after them. As she watched them walk ahead, she thought Keith looked like a little lamb to the slaughter. Brady turned around, looked at Hindley, and pointed towards a slope. Hindley went to where he pointed and watched from her binoculars, but she soon lost sight of them, so she sat down on the ground and waited. She claimed to not hear or see a thing. Just the black rocks that were ahead of her. After about 40 minutes Brady returned with the spade which was covered with dirt. Hindley asked what happened and Brady said that after he assaulted Keith he strangled him with a length of cord, the same as he had done with John, except this time he took a picture of Keith's body before he buried him. Brady started walking back to the car and Hindley followed. Brady buried the spade on the way. They drove back to Hindley's house in Gorton, And once again brady came up with a list to get rid of what he called forensic brady sponged the car inside and out he cut up his clothes and gave them to hindley who threw them into the fire both of them also threw their shoes into the fire along with the cord when they finished hindley drove brady back to westmoreland street they didn't spend the night together they saw each other again at millwoods the next day keith's family didn't realize he was missing until the next morning Keith never arrived at his grandmother's house, so she assumed he must have stayed at home, and since neither he nor Winnie had a phone, they couldn't check in with each other. At 8.30am, Keith's grandmother walked the other children home, and Winnie said, where's our Keith? Keith's grandmother explained that he never arrived. Both women started to panic. Winnie went to Keith's school, but when there was no sign of him there, she called the police. Keith's younger brother, Alan Bennett, was devastated. He somehow knew that Keith wasn't coming back. He left the house and went to the end of the street, to the wall where he and Keith had painted goalposts. He stayed there, kicking the ball against the wall for a long time. At 5pm that afternoon, when Brady and Hindley finished work, they went to Hindley's house where Brady cleaned the car again, just in case he missed something. Afterwards, he prepared a dark room in the house where he could develop his own pictures. He developed the picture he had taken of keith and showed it to hindley he told her he was going to destroy it because it was out of focus brady then went to the manchester central railway station to the suitcases he had left in the luggage storage containing what he referred to as incriminating material hindley said she never knew what was inside the suitcases and could only assume she never attempted to open them because brady placed hair over the locks a trick he had read in a james bond novel which worked as a warning that someone had opened it under the headline tracker dogs join hunt for lost boy the manchester evening news described Longside, the inner city area of manchester where keith disappeared from as a dangerous area with several murders and missing persons cases occurring there police focused their search around Longside and again went door to door used search dogs and did everything they could to locate keith They paid particular attention to railway buildings and tracks, as Keith loved trains. Like the other cases, rumours started spreading and false sighting reports were made. Two children said they had seen Keith outside Longsight Library the morning after he disappeared. Others said Keith had run away. But Keith's parents were adamant he hadn't. Just like Pauline and John, there was no reason for Keith to run away. Although police weren't making the link publicly, Winnie had no doubt Keith's disappearance was linked to John Kilbride's disappearance and she went to visit Sheila, John's mother. The media was waiting and a picture of this meeting appeared under the headline, Missing Boys and the Two Mothers Who Wait. After their first meeting, Winnie and Sheila continued to meet up with each other occasionally. Winnie also met Joan Reed, Pauline's mother. Winnie went into labour prematurely and gave birth to a healthy son, Keith's grandmother constantly blamed herself for not saying anything sooner about Keith never arriving at her house. Keith's sisters kept asking where Keith was and cried themselves to sleep. Keith's stepfather Jimmy was targeted by police, just like John's father was. They inspected the house, tore up floorboards and checked everywhere for signs of foul play. Jimmy was taken in for questioning repeatedly. Jimmy said he understood and wanted to cooperate, However, after a while, it became too much and started to put a heavy burden on his marriage. Winnie confronted the police, telling them, quote, Do you think I'd have stayed with my husband if I thought he had anything to do with Keith? You're splitting my family up, and if that happens, you'll have my death and the death of four kitties on your conscience, because I'll kill myself and take them with me. The police did back off, but soon after this, Winnie was stopped in the street by a woman who said, You're Keith's mum, aren't you? you know what happened to him he's been chopped up and fed to the pigs those words haunted Winnie for a long time and it wasn't long before she started to lose all hope along with their house to house inquiries police dragged a nearby brook but came up empty on July 3, 1964 Winnie was quoted in the Gorton and Openshaw reporter she said I'm very worried now for the longer it is I fear there's less chance of him being found one week later, the same newspaper ran an article about Pauline Reed on the front page. The headline read, One year ago, girl went dancing and disappeared. Newspapers ran a new appeal for information about Pauline, together with a TV broadcast by police, while still giving coverage to the disappearance of Keith Bennett, but no useful information was gained. Another quote from Winnie, My senses told me he was dead, but I just couldn't believe it. And then one night, when my new baby was about three months old, I was feeding him and half falling asleep while I was doing it. And in my drowsy state, I heard Keith call to me, as clearly as anything. "Mum," he shouted. And then I knew for certain he was dead. On Saturday the 15th of August, 1964, two months after Keith's murder, Maureen Hindley, Myra's sister, married David Smith david smith was born in manchester on the 9th of january 1948 his mother joyce hull was in her late teens when she fell pregnant to john smith a 20 year old engineer they never married and when david was around 12 months old he was left in the care of his grandparents annie and john smith senior as a little boy david was spoilt rotten by annie his grandfather john senior gambled a lot his father john saw very little of him He travelled for work constantly, and when he was home, he did try and spend quality time with David, but never got it quite right, and their relationship was a strained one. David attended Ross Place Primary. He spent most of his time with Annie, who he called Mum. Annie told David she was a nurse at Manchester Royal Infirmary, but when he went to surprise visit her there one day, he found out she was a cleaner. Annie was ashamed, but David didn't care. He was still Annie, his mum. David loved living with his grandparents, but at the age of eight, David's father appeared in the middle of the night and took David to live with him in Gorton. While living with his father, David was abused. His abuser was the nephew of another tenant who rented the house with David's father. After that, David started rebelling. He ended up in magistrate's court facing a charge of assault and wounding after stabbing another boy. He was given probation. That same year he started at stanley grove secondary school where he entered the boxing club the headmaster saw great potential in david's boxing ability he won several matches but after a while wanted to quit the headmaster tried to talk him out of quitting and during the conversation he talked negatively about david's father david stood up for his dad and punched the headmaster straight in the nose he was expelled he then attended all saints school but that didn't last long either a fellow student called David a bastard. David responded by picking up a cricket bat and breaking the boy's fingers. David's probation officer found out about this incident, and once again, he was summoned to the magistrate's court. This time, they sent him to Rose Hill, Remand home. He only stayed there for a short time, but when he got out, no school wanted to have him. He finally got accepted at St. James in Gorton. He was 13 years old. And he soon met a girl who he had seen often around the streets of gorton maureen hindley maureen was two years older than david and their relationship was a casual one at first david remembers one time during the early part of their relationship maureen said he had to come to her house to intervene in a fight her sister myra was having with their dad bob david agreed to help but when he got there he saw myra hitting bob fiercely she didn't need his help In 1963, Annie died from cancer. She'd been battling it for six months. David was 15. He was actually on his way to visit her when someone stopped him in the street and said, Do you know your mum's dead? David ran to her house and saw that it was true. David hid in an alley and started crying. Maureen found him and consoled him. He realised at that moment that Maureen was now the only person in the world he cared about. David never went to Annie's funeral because it was too much for him. That summer, David abandoned school and joined a local gang, the Taylor Street Gang. They liked to break into people's houses. On July 8, 1963, David appeared before the Magistrates' Court again, charged with breaking into and stealing from both homes and local stores. He was put on probation for a period of three years. He was the talk of Gorton, but the talk about David lasted less than a week because four days after his court appearance, Pauline Reed disappeared. David knew Pauline. He met her when he first moved to Gorton when he was eight years old. Pauline saw David sitting alone on the sidewalk one day and started talking to him. A few years later, they shared a brief kiss. David always thought the world of Pauline. He considered her sweet and innocent, and like many others, he couldn't understand how she vanished. He only lived a few doors away from Pauline, So he was interviewed twice by police, but he wasn't much help. He didn't know anything. After leaving school, David became an apprentice electrician. That only lasted six or seven months before he left and became a labourer, but that didn't last long either. In March 1964, Maureen told him she was pregnant. David said he would be there for her, and they decided to get married, since in those days having a child outside of marriage was frowned upon. Maureen moved in with David and his father and on the 15th of August 1964, they tied the knot at All Saints Registry Office in Manchester. The only people in attendance were David's father, uncle, aunt, and cousin. None of Maureen's relatives approved of the marriage, not even Myra, who she was so close to. Myra didn't like David, and told Maureen her marriage to him was a mistake. Afterwards, David and Maureen celebrated at several pubs. There was no reception or honeymoon, since they were very scarce on money. Maureen was 18 years old and seven months pregnant at the time. David was 16. After they finished celebrating at the pubs that night, Maureen and David made their way home. It wasn't long before there was a knock at the door. It was Myra Hindley, who said, Ian would like a drink with you. They were surprised at the invitation since they didn't attend the wedding and Hindley was very much against their marriage and David from the beginning. While David was dating Maureen, Hindley told him, I've tried to explain what an asshole you are, but for some reason she still wants to be with you, so I'm telling you now. If you ever, ever hurt her in any way, you're a dead man. Do you get me? A dead man. This thing between you will be tolerated, but you better mind your back, because every step of the way I'll be watching you, David Smith. Right? Every fucking step you take. Maureen and David agreed to the invitation. They made their way to Hindley's house, and they were surprised things seemed different. Hinderley and Brady were both friendly towards them. David had only officially met Brady once before, a few months earlier. It was very brief and they didn't really speak. Now at Hindley's house, they were welcomed with a bottle of wine Brady had reserved to share with them, along with whiskey. The ambience was relaxed and David summarised the night with the following words. Everybody was dressed up, but no one was going anywhere. It was civilised, and that impressed me. Hindley and Maureen danced in the living room while David joined them occasionally, and Brady made sure everyone's glasses stayed full. At one point during the night, Brady said to David, I believe you've got a record. The next day, Hindley appeared at David and Maureen's doorstep again. She invited them out for a day at the lake. They stopped at several pubs on the way there and on the way back, and both David and Brady got very drunk. On the way home, Brady rambled to David about capitalism and the nonsense in working for a living. David listened, but more than anything, he was impressed at Brady's generosity that day and the previous night, and was thankful for the wedding present this trip had represented. At 1am, they arrived at Hindley's house, and continued drinking until daylight. From then on, the four of them started getting together regularly. Saturdays became fish and chip nights, and when it started getting late, Hindley and Maureen would go upstairs to sleep leaving Brady and David alone in the living room. David started closely observing Hindley and Brady and their relationship. The first thing he noticed was how much they loved animals, especially dogs. He also noticed how Brady didn't have any sort of fondness towards anyone, not even really Hindley, who David thought he just seemed to accept. He once saw Brady put an arm around Hindley when he was drunk, but that was the only time he saw any public affection from him. As for Hindley, David believed she cared for Brady very much. He also knew how much Hindley cared for Maureen and how close they were. But one person Hindley never cared for was David. During their regular get-togethers, she would be civil towards him and even friendly at times, but she was growing very jealous of the forming friendship between him and Brady. In September 1964, many Gorton residents were relocated, including Hindley and Gren, who she still lived with. They moved to 16 Wardlebrook Avenue in Hattersley, 19 kilometres east of the city. Brady stayed over often and he placed a lock on Hindley's door. Hindley was happy about the move and decorated the house, buying various items to do it up. Between them, Brady and Hindley earned £24 a week. With that, they paid for rent, fuel for the car and motorcycle, new furniture and other items for the house and they were always going away for trips to the countryside or to Scotland. They also purchased a great deal of alcohol. How they managed to fund all of it is unknown, but they were living a more upscale life than most in the area. When Hindley went shopping, she'd speak in a posh accent. When she walked through the streets of Hattersley, she'd be selective about what people she spoke to. One neighbour in Wardlebrook Avenue Hindley and Brady made friends with was Paddy Masterton, an 11-year-old girl She stopped by at Hindley's house looking for her mum since the two houses were almost next to each other. Hindley hadn't seen her mum but she invited Paddy inside. Paddy immediately took to Puppet, Hindley's dog, and to Lassie, Gran's dog. Hindley asked if she would like to go with her to get Brady. Paddy agreed. When they got to Brady's house they had to wait outside. Brady made Hindley wait outside for him since the start of their relationship he'd never introduced her to his mother or stepfather. When Brady got in the car, Hindley introduced him to Paddy, and the three of them quickly became friends. Paddy would often go to Hindley's house to watch television, since she didn't have one at home. Paddy wasn't the only child Brady and Hindley were friendly with either. They were kind to several children in the neighbourhood, and Brady also got along well with his foster nephews. He would visit them and hide money in their rooms as presents. They even took some of the kids in the neighbourhood to the moors. The one they took the most though was Paddy. Once, when they were walking through the moor, Brady told her, If you're thirsty, have a drink from that brook. It's nice pure water. The brook was next to John Kilbride's burial site. Elsie Masterton, Paddy's mother, said this about Hindley. She was the type I could have imagined forging anything, but never to do any harm to children. Because I thought a person who loved animals as much as she did would be incapable of that, and she made such a fuss of children. Neither Hindley nor Brady ever explained the forming of friendships with some children while taking the lives of other children, but Brady stated that sometimes adults like to become friends with the young to escape the serious adult world. In October 1964, Maureen gave birth to a daughter, Angela Dawn. David proved to be a great father making a fuss of her every chance he got. That same month, in Manchester's juvenile court, David was put on a good behaviour bond for 12 months and fined 6 pounds for two cases of common assault. But he was also able to find steady work to support his family. It was a time David looked back on as being happy. Brady and Hindley didn't seem interested in Angela Dawn at all. Hindley never held or paid any attention to her, and Brady seemed uncomfortable around her. One Friday night, Brady and Hindley visited David and Maureen at their home in Gorton. Brady and David were outside getting some fresh air after having drinks together. While they were outside, David saw Joan and Amos Reed, Pauline's parents. They still only lived a few doors from him. David wished them good night, and Joan said the same to him. After Joan and Amos walked inside, Brady said, Then the parents of that missing girl. David nodded. Brady said, So what's the story behind that? What do you think happened to her? David told him the rumours he'd heard, that she had run off with a fairground worker or gone to Australia. Brady got very interested when David mentioned the police had asked him questions about her. He wanted to know exactly what they asked him. David finished by telling Brady he didn't believe the rumours about Pauline because she wasn't the type to run away. He said to Brady, she was quiet, nice, not that sort of girl at all. November 23, 1964 was the one year anniversary of John Kilbride's disappearance and Detective Chief Inspector Joseph Mounsey renewed the investigation. Mounsey was promoted to Detective Chief Inspector in Ashton-under-Lyne earlier that year. He immediately started checking the backlog of unsolved cases to see if there was anything worth looking into again. He came upon John's case and called Sheila John's mother. It wasn't long before he agreed with her. Something awful had happened to John patrick her husband had nothing to do with it mouncy started a campaign to see if he could uncover any new leads he reprinted the posters with john's face made appeals on television and in newspapers asking for anyone with information to come forward he also organized the reconstruction of john's disappearance at the market john was played by danny his brother as they looked a lot alike however no one came forward with new information Mounsey was so determined to find John that John became known as Mounsey's lad to the other officers at Ashton Underline Police Station. On Christmas Day 1964, Brady and Hindley took their 11-year-old neighbour Paddy to Saddleworth Moor to celebrate. Afterwards, they drove Paddy home, but then returned to the moor and spent the night. While there, they planned a new murder, and this time, they wanted to do things differently. They wanted to take the victim back to Hindley's house. The next morning, Boxing Day 1964, six months after the murder of Keith Bennett, Brady gave Hindley a new record, Girl Don't Come, by Sadie Shaw. Hindley dropped her gran at her son's place, Hindley's uncle, for Boxing Day celebrations. While Hindley was driving gran there, Brady made preparations He set up his camera and lights inside Hindley's room and placed a reel-to-reel tape recorder under her bed. Hindley had given Brady the recorder for Christmas. Hindley returned after lunch and told Brady that she had arranged to pick Gran up at 9.30pm. That afternoon, while at a store, they saw posters advertising Silcox Wonderfair, which is exactly where they were headed. But first, they went grocery shopping and filled up a couple of cardboard boxes. Then they drove to Hulme Hall Lane near Manchester's city centre and parked the car in an empty side street. They took the cardboard boxes overloaded with groceries with them. They walked through the fair until they saw a girl by herself staring at the bumper cars. She seemed enthralled by them. Brady and Hindley stood behind her for several minutes at a distance to make sure she was alone. When no one came for her, they made their approach. The girl was 10-year-old Leslie Ann Downey. Leslie lived in a new council flat at 25 Charnley Walk in Coates, close to Manchester's city centre. She lived with her mother Ann, her mother's partner Alan West, and three brothers. Ann's marriage to Leslie's father, Terence Downey, didn't work out, and they split up in early 1964. Terence remarried, but still saw his children often, Anne met Alan West, a truck driver, while she was working as a waitress in Manchester's centre. They fell in love and moved in together. Leslie had wavy dark hair in a bob style. She was an extremely shy girl, but showed her true colours when singing and dancing. She had attended her first dance a few months prior, with her oldest brother Terry, who was 14, and she had a crush on one of the band members who played that evening. Terry noticed and asked for a lock of the boy's hair, which Leslie kept safe inside a box in her room. Leslie had a close group of friends at school and was very fond of animals, especially her dog Rebel. On Christmas morning, Leslie had gotten a nurse's costume, a doll, several board games, and her favourite, a small electric sewing machine. At Trinity Methodist Church, children were offered the chance to have their presents blessed, and after breakfast, Leslie took the sewing machine with her. That Boxing Day morning, when Leslie woke up, she found a new pair of presents on top of her dressing table, a necklace of white beads, and a matching bracelet. They were from her brother, Terry, who had visited Silcox Wonderfair and had won them for her at the shooting gallery. The fair was less than one kilometre from their home. Leslie put the necklace and bracelet on straight away, then she spent the morning playing with her new toys. Her mother, Anne, promised she'd show her how to sew dresses for her two favourite dolls, Patsy and Lynn, later that day. Shortly before 4pm, Leslie put on a coat and left the flat with her younger brother, Tommy, who was eight. They'd arranged to go to Silcox Wonderfair with Mrs. Clark, who lived downstairs. Leslie was good friends with Mrs. Clark's daughters, in particular, Linda Clark. But when Leslie and Tommy knocked on the door, Mrs. Clark said she was too tired to go. So instead, all of the children went on their own, but they had to be back home by 5pm. At 5pm, all of the children had run out of money. Plus, as they were supposed to be back home anyway, they left the fair and started walking home. But on the way, Leslie stopped and said, I'm going back. She turned around and ran back to the fair before any of the other children could say anything. At 6pm, a boy who went to school with Leslie saw her at the bumper cars he didn't notice Brady and Hindley, who were at a distance, watching her, waiting. A few minutes after six, Brady and Hindley approached Leslie. They were still carrying the cardboard boxes filled with groceries, and deliberately spilled a few items next to Leslie. Leslie turned around and looked at them. Hindley gave her a smile, and asked Leslie if she wouldn't mind helping them carry the boxes back to their car. Hindley promised a reward for helping, and Leslie agreed. When they got to the car, Hindley asked Leslie if she would mind helping them take the boxes home. Leslie agreed and got into the front passenger seat. Hindley and Brady carefully put the boxes around Leslie so she was blocked from view. Then they drove to Hindley's house in Hattersley. When they walked inside the house at 16 Waterbrook Avenue, Hindley told Leslie to take the boxes upstairs. Brady was already up there waiting in Hindley's room. Brady turned on the tape recorder. Two lots of footsteps were heard entering the room, Leslie and Hindley. They tried to get Leslie to put a handkerchief in her mouth to gag her. Leslie asked to go home. She told them she didn't want to get undressed or put the handkerchief in her mouth. Brady said they just wanted to take some photographs, and the sooner she did as she was told, the sooner she could go home. Leslie knew something awful was happening and kept refusing the gag. Hindley can be heard on the tape saying, Shut up or I'll forget myself and hit you one. Keep it in. Brady is heard saying, Put it in. If you don't keep that hand down, I'll slit your throat. Put it in. The recording ended with Little Drummer Boy playing in the background and three loud cracks. The cracks were from Brady opening up the tripod and setting up his camera. The tape recording was stopped because there was only one socket in the room and Brady needed it for the photography light. When they were done, Hindley ran a bath for Leslie at Brady's request. He wanted to remove any dog hairs or other fibres. Brady carried Leslie to the bathroom. She had been strangled with a piece of cord. Hindley claims Leslie was killed by Brady while she was running the bath. Brady's account is different. In his version, he says Hindley is the one who killed Leslie, using the piece of cord to strangle her. He said Hindley then kept the cord and pulled it out and played with it in public, enjoying the secret knowledge of what it had been used for after washing leslie's body brady wrapped her in the blood-stained bedsheet and carried her to the car it was 8 p.m he and hindley headed for the moor but the weather had turned it was snowing heavily and they noticed cars sliding on the road they decided to turn around and drive back to hattersley they still had to pick up Gran, too Brady couldn't believe Hindley wanted to pick her up while they still had Leslie's body in the car. So Hindley came up with another idea. She knocked on her uncle's door and told him she couldn't take Gran home because the roads were too bad. Her uncle wasn't happy, but Hindley left without Gran. She drove back home and Brady carried Leslie's body into the house and put her back onto Hindley's bed. He set up his dark room and developed the photographs. They listened to the tape together while they looked at the photos. Hindley begged Brady to destroy it all once he was done. They finished the night curled up together in the sofa bed in front of the fire. Hindley stated, That Christmas became the anniversary of many bad memories, not least of all the killing of little Leslie Ann, which gives me the deepest shame. Meanwhile, Leslie's family was becoming desperate. When Leslie turned around and went back to the fair alone, her brother Tommy continued on home. Secretly, he was hoping Leslie changed her mind, or was playing a joke, and she would be back there waiting for him. But she wasn't. Their mother Anne asked Tommy what happened. When he told her, Anne and her partner Alan immediately went to the fair to look for Leslie. They started running back and forth between the fair and the flat, looking for her everywhere, shouting her name. They searched for hours. They stopped in at the Clark's flat where Anne screamed at Mrs. Clark for not going with the children. They then went to Mill Street Police Station to report her disappearance. Early the next morning, Brady carried Leslie's body back to the car. He and Hindley drove to Saddleworth Moor. Brady got out and cautiously looked around, checking to make sure no one else was present. He then walked off with Leslie's body. They drove home to Hindley's and Brady washed the spade before making breakfast. They then went and picked up Grant. That evening, the local news was reporting Leslie's disappearance, and detectives were searching the fair, interviewing every single visitor and fairground worker. They also checked empty houses, abandoned factories, and farms in the area. Two days after the murder, the Manchester Evening News ran an all too familiar headline Tracker Dogs Join Giant Search for Girl. Millwoods opened back up for business on Tuesday, the 29th of December. Brady and Hindley returned to work, and their boss Tom found it strange that Brady repeatedly asked him about his daughter. Her name was also Leslie Ann. By New Year's Eve, 6,000 posters with Leslie's photo had been printed, and 5,000 flyers were handed out in pubs, cafes, and shops. Leslie's family helped distribute the posters and flyers. New Year's Eve was spent very differently for Brady and Hindley they partied with David, Maureen and Hindley's parents, Bob and Nellie. Brady supplied the alcohol and seemed especially happy. He went as far as kissing Maureen on the cheek to wish her good luck in the new year, and he even stroked baby Angela Dawn's hair. On New Year's Day 1965, the Gorton and Openshaw Reporter dedicated most of its front page to Leslie, with the headline, Have you seen 10-year-old Leslie? Big search for lost girl. Pauline Reed, John Kilbride and Keith Bennett were also mentioned in the same article. Hindley bought the newspaper and later that morning their 11-year-old neighbour Paddy visited them. Hindley handed the newspaper to Paddy and asked her if she'd like to read it. Paddy saw the headline and mentioned that Leslie lived near a friend of hers. Hindley asked her about Leslie and Brady had his tape recorder on during the conversation. He and Hindley kept the tape. One more of their souvenirs. Through the first weeks of January 1965, an intense search continued. Police officers went to schools and warned children about stranger danger. Like the fathers and stepfathers in the other cases, Alan West was interviewed several times. Their flat was turned upside down, but he was eventually ruled out as a suspect. Anne kept Leslie's room exactly like her daughter had left it. She also went to the police station at least twice a week to see if there was any sort of breakthrough she told the press, quote, it's a nightmare. I can't sleep or eat. If I close my eyes, I can see her all the time. In the third week of January 1965, Anne made a new appeal through the Gorton and Openshaw reporter, stating, to whoever is holding my Leslie, if only they knew the agony that myself and my family are going through. Her little brothers keep asking when she is coming home. I plead with all the mothers never to let their children out of their sight because they do not know the heartbreak of losing them until it happens. Terry, Leslie's older brother, added, Whoever is holding our Leslie, please look after her because she will be very sad and ill being away from mum. Former Prime Minister of England Winston Churchill died on the 24th of January 1965. Brady hated him for helping putting an end to the Third Reich. He bought a bottle of drambuie to celebrate with Maureen and David. Hindley fully agreed with Brady, stating, the best thing Churchill did for Britain was dying. Maureen and David didn't exactly agree, but they still celebrated with them. David found Brady's intellect impressive, but he still teased him for being what he called a real square when it came to musical tastes. Hindley was getting increasingly jealous of David and how he could make Brady laugh and relax in ways she couldn't. In February 1965, Maureen mentioned that Anne, Leslie's mother, had offered the reward of £100 to anyone who could provide useful information about Leslie. Maureen ended with the line, Her mother must think a lot of the child. Hindley cracked up laughing. During the investigation into Leslie and Downey's disappearance, police would eventually interview 6,000 people, and false sightings of Leslie came in from everywhere from Blackpool to Belgium. In April 65, Hindley sold her car and bought a mini Countryman, which had the same feature as her previous car, folding back seats that gave ample space in the rear. That month, Hindley and Brady travelled to Scotland again. They invited Paddy with them, but Paddy's mother said no. When they returned from Scotland, Brady moved into Hindley's place at 16 Wardlebrook Avenue, Hattersley, permanently. A few weeks later, he saw Paddy climbing over a wall at the side of the house. He accused her of trying to get into their garden and told her that if he ever caught her again, he'd break her back. Patty never spoke to Brady or Hindley again after that. On April 25th, 1965, Angela Dawn, Maureen and David's daughter, died of bronchitis. She was six months old. David was working when he was told to go to hospital because Maureen was there. He didn't think it could be anything serious. When he got there, he was ushered into a room and told his daughter had died. David couldn't understand it since he had been playing with her that morning. Angela Dawn was laughing and seemed happy and healthy. David was left alone in the hospital room and he ended up destroying it. He then went home, packed a suitcase full of his daughter's clothes and belongings and threw it down a railway embankment. Maureen, David and Hindley's mother Nellie went to tell Brady and Hindley the news they were watching tv at the time brady's reaction was complete annoyance at having his viewing interrupted so hindley walked them all out of the house so brady could continue watching tv in peace maureen and david knew they couldn't stay at the house where they raised angela dawn david went to his grandfather's house in ardwick where he spent part of his early childhood and maureen moved back to Nellie's house in Gordon. hindley and brady attended the funeral which was held with an open casket When Hindley saw Angela Dawn, tears spilled from her eyes. She immediately cleaned them up and asked Maureen and David not to tell Brady. David couldn't understand why Hindley crying at her niece's funeral would be a problem for Brady. He left the two sisters alone and walked outside for a cigarette. Brady was outside sitting in the car. David was even more confused when Brady completely ignored him. Two days after the funeral, though, Brady and Hindley picked up David and Maureen and took them to the moor, where they spent the day drinking. When it got dark, Brady asked David to go for a walk with him. While they were gone, Hindley told Maureen to stop crying about losing Angela Dawn and to buy herself a dog. Brady took David for a walk and after a while told him to stop and stare up at the moon. David did so, and they remained at that spot for about ten minutes. Brady then broke the silence and said they should get back to the car. The spot they were standing was where John Kilbride was buried. Brady and Hindley continued taking David and Maureen out often, including more trips to Saddleworth Moor. Maureen and David were thankful for these outings to help distract them from losing Angela Dawn, although they often wondered why Brady got so angry if other people were at Saddleworth Moor, or why he always had to find specific spots every time they went. On July 23, 1965, Hindley turned 23 and Maureen and David moved into a new council flat in Hattersley, only a few hundred metres away from Hindley, Brady and Grant. David and Brady became even closer. Brady started giving David books to read, the same ones he'd shared with Hindley, except with David it worked differently. David would read the books and write notes about them, either quoting them or making his own assertions from the philosophy shared in each one. He would then share his notes and thoughts with Brady. David was only 17 years old, and he looked up to Brady. He saw him as older, far more intellectual, and someone who could teach him. David said that before the death of Angela Dawn, Brady's rants never got to him. He was forever going on about Hitler, the Nazi party, politics, and society in general. David listened to him talk, but he never took any of it in. But after the death of Angela Dawn he ate up every word of what Brady said. David visited Brady almost every day at 16 Wardlebrook Avenue. Sometimes Hinderley would refuse to let him in, telling him Brady was busy. Other times she would make him wait across the road until Brady was available. When she flicked the lights on and off, that was the sign that David could go in. In August '65, Brady asked David if he would like to rob a bank. It wasn't the first time Brady had made this proposal, but it was the first time David listened. Previously, David had ignored Brady and changed the subject, but now he needed money. So they made a plan to rob the Williams and Glynn's Bank, located on Ashton Old Road, 14 kilometres away from Hattersley. Hindley would be the driver, and Brady and David would take care of the rest. David's assignment was to take notes of arrivals and departures from the bank, paying particular attention to when the cash van arrived. David spent an entire day outside the bank taking notes. When he gave them to Brady, he barely glanced at them. He then put them aside like they weren't important. That was as far as their bank robbery got. One night soon after, they were having a drink together, and during the session, Brady pointed a gun at David. He said, "'This is how easy it is to kill. Look at me, then look at the gun. Look at the fucking gun.' David was petrified and looked at the gun." Brady continued talking. Look into the hole of the gun. You're not going to see it coming. Blink, and you won't even know I've shot you. Look at the fucking gun. You're about to die. A second later, Brady pulled the trigger. But it wasn't loaded. Brady said, That's how easy it is, Dave. You just have to press the fucking trigger. At the end of August, Maggie and Patrick, Brady's mother and stepfather, moved from their house in Westmoreland Street and on September 18th, Brady and Hindley travelled back to Scotland. In Glasgow, he would walk through the streets and photograph strangers for no apparent reason. At one point, they crossed the child walking alone, and Hindley looked at him and asked, Don't you want to do another one? Brady replied he'd never kill one of his own. Hindley was worried. She thought Brady had been acting strangely, revealing too much to David, slowly letting him into their inner sanctum. On October 2nd, 1965, during another drinking session, Brady said to David, What's wrong with killing somebody if you're prepared to accept responsibility for your actions? He continued that the victim's family had a right to kill you afterwards if they wanted, because that was only fair. He told David that God doesn't exist, because if he did, he wouldn't have let Angela Dawn die. He then said, Listen to me. I've killed. I've done it. I know what it's like brady could see david didn't believe him and said you think i'm lying don't you you think i'm a lying cunt but it's been done i've killed more than once but you don't believe me maggots they're all fucking maggots david raised his eyebrows and brady tried again to convince him i've got photographic proof and you've sat on one of the graves Brady started rambling that the right way to do it was to choose people over the age of 16 because police didn't give as much importance to them and if possible try and choose victims who were Jewish or gay. Brady specifically mentioned targeting Manchester Central Railway Station along with gay bars to find victims. He also told David you should place a plastic sheet in the car, take notes of everything and kill the person in a place where you have full control. Brady finished with the words, it will be done again. David didn't believe a word of what he said. On Wednesday, October 6th, 1965, ten months after the murder of Leslie Ann Downey, Brady gave Hindley a new record. It's All Over Now, Baby Blue, by Joan Baez. They went to work, finishing at 5pm. When they got home, Brady walked the dogs, and then they got ready to go out. They left home at 8pm. Hindley drove to Manchester Central Railway Station and let Brady out. She stayed with the car but didn't pay for parking. A police officer knocked on her window. Hindley explained that she was waiting for her boyfriend who was inside at the bar and she'd be leaving soon. The officer gave her a warning and said that if she wasn't gone by the time he came back, he'd book her. At the station, Brady went to the bar. He tried to open the door a few times until a teenage boy approached him and told him it was closed. The boy was 17 year old Edward Evans. Edward lived at 55 Addison Street in Ardwick, which was due for demolition the following year. He lived with his mother Edith, his father John, and a brother and sister. Since May that year, he'd been working as a junior machine operator. He worked hard, and after work, he liked to go to bars with friends. He was tall, slim, and had light brown hair. A friend of Edward's described him as sociable, with a smart sense of dress. Edward was also very keen on football and was an avid fan of Manchester United, going to watch them often at Old Trafford, the team's home stadium. Edward's parents often worried about him as he went out most nights, but he reassured them, I can handle any trouble. Edward was at work during the day of Wednesday October 6th. When he finished his shift, he went home and told his parents he'd be going to a pub in town with a friend. He had dinner, then went to his room and changed into a white shirt, jeans, brown suede shoes, and his favourite jacket, before leaving home at 6.15pm. Edward went to Auntie's bar on Oxford Road. His friend never turned up, so he had a drink and then left. He headed over to Central Station, two kilometres away. He tried getting into the bar there, but found out it was closed. He hung around outside for a little while and that's when he saw brady trying the door after edward told brady the bar was closed they got chatting edward said there was nowhere else to go to get a drink so brady invited him back to his place in hattersley edward accepted his invitation brady walked edward back to the car and introduced him to hindley he called him eddie he told eddie hindley was his sister Hindley then drove them back to 16 Wardlebrook Avenue. When they got inside, Brady told Hindley to go and get David to join them for a drink. At 11.15pm, the buzzer went off at Maureen and David's flat. They were both in bed and Maureen got up to answer. Maureen let Hindley in and David got out of bed as well. Hindley said she'd come to give Maureen a message, to tell their mother Nellie she'd see her on the weekend, not before, because she didn't have time. Maureen was totally confused and asked why the fuck she had gotten them out of bed to tell them that. Hindley said she just wanted to make sure she passed the message on before she forgot. She then asked David to walk her home since it was so dark and late. David agreed and took a stick with him that had string tied around the end. When they got to 16 Wardlebrook Avenue, Hindley told David to stay on the other side of the road and wait for the lights inside to flick twice before going into the house. David agreed and waited. A moment later, the light flicked twice and David went to the front door. Brady answered and asked in an unusually loud voice, ''Do you want those miniatures?'' David was confused but nodded his head. Brady led him inside and walked him to the kitchen, which was directly opposite the front door. Brady gave him three miniature bottles of wine and asked, ''Do you want the rest?'' David again nodded, not exactly sure what was going on. Brady then disappeared from the kitchen, and David waited. Two minutes later, David heard a scream. Seconds later, there was another scream. Then another. Before he heard Hindley yell, Dave, help him! David ran to the living room where the screams were coming from. The screams he heard came from Edward Evans, who had his legs sprawled out on the floor and his back against the sofa bed, looking up. Brady was standing over him, hitting him with an axe, over and over again, while screaming at him. Fucking cunt! Dirty bastard! Edward tried to crawl to a nearby table to hide underneath, but Brady grabbed his legs and dragged him back out. He kept hitting him with the axe. During the attack, their dogs walked in the living room, and Brady screamed at Hindley, Get the fucking dogs away from the blood! Brady then knelt down and strangled Edward. When he was done, Brady stood up, looked at his hands covered in blood, looked at Hindley and said, that's it, the messiest one yet. David couldn't move. He was paralysed with fear until Brady suddenly walked over and handed him the axe. He said, feel the fucking way to that. How did he take it? David grabbed the axe and smiled, replying, fuck me, I don't know. Brady smiled back at David before a new scream interrupted them. It was Gran, who had been sleeping upstairs in her room. She wanted to know what all the noise was about. Hindley called out that she dropped something on her foot. Then she noticed that Brady's ankle was actually badly hurt. She asked if he was alright. Brady said he was fine and he must have accidentally hit himself with the axe at some point. He told Hindley to bring in the cleaning stuff. While Hindley was gone, he told David there was a hole in the wall by the fireplace that had been left by the axe after it hit Edward's head. He asked David to go and feel it. A moment later, Brady knelt down on top of Edward again and went through his clothes. While he was doing so, David watched and noticed that Edward's pants were open and unzipped. Brady found a wallet, opened it, and started reading aloud to David. Edward Evans, apprentice at Associated Electrical Industries Limited, Trafford Park. The fucker's name was Edward Evans. Eddie. Do you know him, Dave? He's the same age as you and he's from Ardwick as well. Do you know him? David said he didn't. Hindley returned with a plastic sheet and a blanket. The three of them first listened for any commotion outside from neighbours in case they had heard Edward's screams. When they didn't hear anything, they covered Edward's body. In total, Edward had received 14 blows from the axe. Brady said he wanted to tie up Edward but didn't have any rope. David offered him the string that was attached to his stick. Brady grabbed it and got David to help him tie him up. Brady instructed David on what to do. They put his legs up against his chest so he was in the fetal position. They then wrapped him in a blanket. When they finished, they stopped for a cigarette, while Hindley prepared everything to clean the room. Brady said to David, We'll finish up in here and then get a cup of tea down us, eh? How does that sound? Brady said they'd have to leave Edward's body in Hindley's room for the night. With the help of David, they half-lifted, half-dragged Edward up the stairs, while Hindley made sure Gran's door stayed closed. While they were doing so, Brady cracked a joke, saying, Eddie's a dead weight. Hindley started laughing, and although he didn't find it funny, David thought he better laugh too. In Hindley's room, they placed Edward beneath the window. Brady stared down at his body before placing some books on top of him. The three of them cleaned up the blood from the living room with wet pieces of cloth. David couldn't get past the smell of death that covered the entire place. Hindley playfully hit David with one of the wet, blood-soaked cloths. At one point, Brady started playing with the axe again before putting it away in its carrier bag. Once they finished, they sat together and had a cup of tea, just as Brady had said they would. Brady asked Hindley, Myra, how did he take that? What do you think? Hindley answered, I don't know, love, but you could see the blow register in his eyes. Brady asked how they would carry the body to the car, since he had hurt his ankle pretty badly. David came up with a solution. He said they could put him in Angela Dawn's pram. Brady and Hindley both laughed at the idea, but considered it a good one. Hindley offered David another cup of tea, and he said no, he should get back home before Maureen got suspicious. Before leaving, David said, ''Okay then, I'll be off, but see you both later on.'' Hindley responded with a smile, ''Yes, Dave, you will.'' David left 16 Wardlebrook Avenue at 3am. He believed Brady and Hindley might still be watching him, so he remained calm and walked casually until he got out of sight. He then sprinted home. David had been acting, telling Brady and Hindley what they wanted to hear. He said the only reason he helped them clean up that night is because he believed he would be murdered unless he went along with it. He wasn't wrong either. Brady had suggested killing David only one month earlier. Brady said he was tired of David's domestic problems. David and Maureen had been fighting because Maureen was pregnant again. David thought it was too soon after Angela Dawn's death. Brady saw David's relationship with Maureen as a flaw in his character, and something that would eventually ruin his plans, so he told Hindley they should get rid of him. Brady even planned how he would do it, take him for a drive and blow his head off. However, it was Hindley who talked Brady out of it, as she didn't want to do that to her sister. When David got back to his flat that morning, he ran straight to the bathroom and threw up. Maureen heard him and knelt by his side, assuming he had drunk too much alcohol, but David told her he hadn't been drinking. He walked to the living room and told Maureen to sit down. He told her the story. He didn't go into the finer details, but just enough to let her know he had witnessed a murder. Maureen was confused and started asking if her sister was alright. David said, she's alright, but she's part of it. Didn't you hear me girl? She's part of it. Maureen was still very confused by what she was hearing and began crying. David waited a few minutes before telling her that as soon as it was daylight and there was movement in the street, they'd go and phone the police from the nearby phone box. They left their flat just after 6am, October 7th, 1965. David took a knife and a screwdriver with him for protection. The nearest telephone box was a block away on Hare Hill Road. David dialed triple nine, and the call was logged at 6:07 a.m. When the operator asked why he wanted the police, David answered that it was an emergency, and he'd explain when they got there. The operator agreed to send them. David and Maureen hid behind a fence while they waited. David called again a few minutes later to make sure they were still coming. When the police car turned up, the officer was shocked when David and Maureen sprinted towards him and made a frantic attempt to open the doors. The doors were locked so they couldn't get in. The officer eventually calmed them down and allowed them into the car. He secured the knife and the screwdriver David was carrying before driving them to Hyde Police Station. At the station, they were given a cup of tea. The officer who picked them up asked David what happened. David at first stayed quiet, unable to say anything, until he was able to get the words out. It's murder. He started telling the story to the officer and when he was done, the officer asked him if the body was still there. David nodded and said it was upstairs. The officer then left the room. The officer made a call to his supervisor. The supervisor arranged for Detective Sergeant Alex Carr and Superintendent Robert Talbot to speak to David and Maureen. They took a statement off David, and although they had their doubts about his story, they went to Hattersley to check it out. Talbot went in one vehicle Detective Sergeant Carr and Officer Ian Fairley went in another vehicle. Two other vehicles were used to block off the street. David was taken in one of those. They arrived at 16 Wardlebrook Avenue about 8am. A bread delivery van was driving through the street as they arrived and Talbot stopped the driver to ask him if he could borrow his white coat and a basket of bread. The driver agreed. Talbot disguised himself as the bread delivery man and walked to the rear of the house and knocked on the back door. Hindley answered. She gave him a strange look since she didn't buy that particular brand of bread. Talbot asked Hindley, "'Is your husband in?' Hindley responded, "'I haven't got a husband.'" Talbot put down the bread basket, took off the white coat and said, "'I'm a police superintendent and I have reason to believe that there is a man in this house.'" Hindley denied there was any man inside. Talbot said he had reason to believe she was lying and walked in. As soon as he walked in, Hindley gave up his story and said, He's in the other room. Carr and Fairley entered the house through the front door as Talbot walked through the back door. They found Brady sitting on the sofa in the living room, writing a letter. Hindley had this to say about that moment. I'll never forget his face when I took the police into the living room the morning after the murder of Edward Evans. It was expressionless, as it often was, but I saw him almost shrink before my eyes, hopeless and powerless. It was all over. Talbot told Brady they were investigating a report of an act of violence that had occurred in the house the night before. Brady remained silent and stared at them. It was Hindley who spoke, saying, "'There's nothing wrong here.' Talbot said he wanted to inspect the house. Hindley didn't object." Hindley led Talbot upstairs. They first went into Gran's room. Gran wanted to know why the police were there. Hindley said she would bring her a cup of tea later and explain. Talbot found nothing out of the ordinary in Gran's room. Hindley then led Talbot into the bathroom, where he again found nothing. When they got to Hindley's room, the door was locked. Hindley explained she kept it locked because she stored firearms in there and she couldn't open it because the key was in her office at Millwood's. They walked back downstairs. Talbot said they couldn't leave until they inspected Hindley's room. He asked Brady if he had a key. Brady remained silent. Hindley answered for him. It's at work. Talbot told Hindley to put a coat on. She was going with them to Millwood's to get the key. Hindley refused. Talbot ordered Fairley to escort Hindley to Millwood's, but Fairley had another suggestion. Just kick the door in. Talbot looked at Brady after Fairley suggested this. Brady still said nothing. Fairley said again, kick in the door. Hindley saw they weren't getting out of it. She looked at Brady and said, you better tell them. Brady stood up and spoke for the first time. He explained that he had a fight with Eddie the night before and things got out of hand. His body was in Hindley's room. He told Hindley to give them the key she had in her purse. Talbot and Carr entered Hindley's room and saw Edward's body still wrapped up in the blanket with a pile of books on top. The axe was next to his body in the carrier bag. They went back to the living room and told Brady they'd seen the body and he would be going with them to Hyde Police Station for further questioning. Carr started cautioning Brady that he didn't have to say anything but Brady interrupted him. Yes I know. He was then officially placed under arrest. Talbot inspected Hindley's room further and found two guns which were fully loaded. Brady had always planned that if they ever got caught they'd have a shootout with police but the police had caught them off guard and their guns were locked away when they turned up. Hindley wasn't arrested but she wanted to go to the police station with Brady. Talbot told her that would be unnecessary but Hindley insisted so Talbot arranged for her to be taken in a separate car arrangements were also made for grand to be sent elsewhere with her dog lassie while the police continued their investigation hindley took her dog puppet with her and walked outside with brady brady was able to whisper in her ear it's us against the world now brady was handcuffed around one wrist and the other cuff was secured around officer Fairley's wrist neighbors started gathering outside to see what was going on and then a car drove past it was the police car that david was in Brady and Hindley both saw him. Brady smiled and nodded. Hindley gave David a look of hatred. Inside the car, one of the officers asked David, is that them? David nodded. That's them. Brady was taken to an interview room with Carr and Fairley. Brady repeated what he had said at the house. It was just a fight that got out of hand. He agreed to make a full statement. He said he met Edward in Manchester where they had a few drinks before returning to his house in Hattersley. Things got out of hand at the house and they ended up in a fight. David arrived while they were fighting and he ended up hitting Edward with his stick and kicking him. Brady had hurt his ankle during the fight and when Edward went to attack him again, he picked up the axe and hit Edward with it to protect himself. When he realised that he had killed Edward, they tied him up, carried him upstairs and then cleaned up all of the blood. They planned on getting rid of his body that next morning, but the police arrived. Brady made sure to emphasise that Hindley didn't participate at all. He stated, We tied up the body, Dave and I. Nobody else helped. That afternoon, Hindley was taken into an interview room. The first question they asked her was, This morning a man's body was found in your house. Who is that person? Hindley responded, I don't know and I'm not saying anything. Ask Ian. My story's the same as ian's but the police continued asking questions hindley told them that they had all gone to the moors the previous night which was already different to brady's manchester story police would you care to tell me what happened at your house last night hindley all i'm saying is that i didn't do it and ian didn't do it we're involved in something we didn't do we never left each other we never do what happened last night was an accident it should never have happened police. An accident? If what you say is true, it's in your interest to tell the truth of what did happen. Hindley shook her head. Ask Ian. My story is the same as his. What are they going to do with Ian? Because what he has done, I have done. Police. Do you understand how serious this is? Hindley. I understand, but I know this allegation came from David Smith, who is a liar and probably testified he saw everything, but didn't. Police, how did Edward come to be inside your home? Hindley, I've told you before, I'm not saying anything. Hindley's interrogation ended at 4.30pm. By that time, Edward's mother, Edith, was at Hyde Police Station to identify her son's body. She left in tears. She crossed paths with Hindley on the way out. Detective Carr was with Hindley at the time, and said, she was totally lacking in emotion, She never showed any remorse at any time when i spoke to her she was hard and evil pathologist charles st hill first inspected edward's body in hindley's room the books that brady placed on his body were the red brain a collection of horror tales among women only a collection of post-war tales from italy and the road ahead a collection of children's poetry st hill noted that all of edward's features had been distorted beyond recognition His trousers were unfastened, and in one of his pockets there was a letter from a girl named Wendy. Wendy had written a friend of hers was interested in a friend of Edward's, so to please ask him out for her. She also told Edward she missed him and hoped he would be visiting sometime soon. Above her signature, she gave lots of kisses. An entire team of officers combed through the house looking for evidence. They found samples of hair, blood, clothing, two tape recorders with tapes, hundreds of photographs and negatives. A tartan photo album two loaded guns bullets in a cardboard box and to the carrier bag containing the axe that had killed edward the letter that brady had been writing in the living room when police entered was addressed to tom brady's and hindley's boss at millwoods it was writing that he had a bad ankle after an accident on his motorbike and he would have to see a doctor at 6 30 pm detective chief superintendent arthur benfield arrived at the house benfield was head detective of cheshire county which Hyde police station was part of at the time benfield had already been at the house that morning but returned to make sure nothing had been overlooked other officers were still combing through the house and hadn't gotten to hindley's car yet benfield searched the car and found a wallet inside the wallet were three sheets of paper written on the paper were brady's instructions on how to clean up after the murder to get rid of forensic brady had used abbreviations and code words but benfield still recognized it as a blueprint for murder benfield took the sheets of paper with him back to hyde police station and showed them to brady brady's response was to ask about hindley but benfield pressed him about what was written on the paper brady admitted he'd written it but said he did so after edward's murder benfield asked him about the abbreviations and codes brady cleared some of them up but lied about others Benfield's last question was why Brady had written guns on the list when the murder was committed with an axe. Brady said, for if anybody had seen us burying the body, the guns were for self-protection. Benfield ended his interview with Brady at 8.20pm and then charged him with the murder of Edward Evans. Brady was given a charge form on which he wrote, I stand on the statement I made this morning. He signed it and was then taken to the basement cells for the night. After charging Brady, Benfield went for Hindley. Hindley had been waiting in the station's canteen since her interview ended earlier that afternoon. She had been visited by her mother Nellie and her uncle, who pleaded with her to tell the truth. An early police theory was that Hindley was a sex worker, and Brady killed Edward because he refused to pay. They took her clothes for inspection, as well as samples of her saliva, blood, and hair. The samples showed that she shared the same blood group as Edward. When Benfield entered the canteen and approached Hindley, he was straight to the point. Would you like to say anything about the murder? Hindley, no, not until you let me see Ian. Benfield, he's been charged with murder and will be in court tomorrow morning. Hindley, then I'll be in court and I'll see you after I've seen Ian. Benfield let her go, but told her she couldn't return to 16 Wardlebrook Avenue since the house was still being examined. Hindley asked where Brady would be spending the night. When Benfield answered, in a cell, it was the first time Hindley's hard expression changed to one of worry. As Hindley left the station with Nellie, they crossed paths with David and Maureen. Nellie and Hindley gave them both a look of hatred. Nellie considered what Maureen had done to her sister as betrayal to the family. David and Maureen had been questioned the entire day and night. David's name actually appeared as part of Brady's disposal plan on the three sheets of paper. David said he had no idea why Brady included him. He had never seen the sheets of paper before. At her mother's house, Hindley read the Manchester Evening News and saw there was a column on the front page that already talked about her. The headline read, Body found in house. Murder. It mentioned her and Gran's name, but it didn't mention Brady's name. At 10 a.m. the next day, Friday, October 8, 1965, Brady appeared at Hyde Magistrates Court the Manchester Evening News reported the event as follows. At a three-minute hearing, a man was charged with the murder of Edward Evans. As he left the dock, he nodded at a blonde woman friend. After Brady's first brief court appearance, Hindley went to Hyde Police Station with their dog Puppet. She asked to see Brady and asked if she could have a car back. Both requests were denied. While all this was going on, detectives were trying to find out more, Talbot and Benfield concentrated on Edward, trying to work out if he had a connection to Brady. They spoke to Edward's family and friends, showing them a picture of Brady, but no one recognised him. Detective Fairley went to Millwood's to search Brady and Hindley's office and to interview their co-workers. He didn't learn much from them, other than Brady and Hindley kept mostly to themselves. In his statement, David Smith said that Brady bragged he had killed before the murder of Edward Evans and had specifically mentioned taking people from Manchester to the Moors. Manchester police searched through missing person cases and found three that jumped out at them, Pauline Reid, Keith Bennett, and Leslie Ann Downey. John Kilbride was taken from Ashton-under-Lyne, that was part of a different jurisdiction, Lancashire County, so Manchester police didn't link it. Detective Chief Inspector John Tyrrell from Manchester City Police visited Hyde Police Station to learn more about Ian Brady. On the morning of Saturday October 9th, Hindley returned to Hyde Police Station in another attempt to see Brady. Benfield grabbed her and took her into his office. He asked her more questions, but all Hindley would say is, Ian didn't do it, and I didn't do it. Benfield asked, then who did it? Hindley answered, I'm not saying nothing till I've seen Ian's solicitor. A meeting was arranged with the solicitor for Monday and Hindley left the station. Hindley went to a laundrette and then to her office in Millwoods. Her boss, Tom, arrived a little later. He told Hindley Brady would never be allowed to enter Millwoods again, but she could keep her job. Hindley actually requested to be let go since she could claim the doll. Later that Saturday, the investigation changed for good. Fairley was going through a notebook belonging to Brady they found at 16 Wardlebrook Avenue. On one of the pages that contained the names of actors and other characters, he saw a name that jumped out at him. John Kilbride. Fairley immediately remembered John as the boy who had gone missing from Ashton Market back in November 1963. Ashton Underline police were immediately notified. Detective Chief Inspector Joe Mouncy couldn't get there quick enough. He went through brady's notebook and then asked to speak to david smith who had been questioned over 10 hours each day since brady's arrest david was being taken back and forth between hyde police station and manchester police station he had also done a reenactment of the killing and cleanup at 16 wardlebrook avenue david felt no one believed him and he was being treated more as a suspect than as a witness that all changed with mounsey's arrival david believed mounsey listened to him and instead of having immediate suspicion of him like the others, he displayed patience and understanding. After speaking to David, Mounsey asked to inspect the photographs found in the house. He thought some of them didn't seem right, as they were pictures of mostly dirt. One that stood out in particular to Mounsey was of Hindley's car next to Black Rocks on the moor. He remembered David mentioning bodies being buried on the moor, so Mounsey said, we'll do what Brady did, bloody well dig. His superior at Ashton Underline agreed, but Benfield thought it was a needle in a haystack job, since the Moors was an area of 400 square miles. The search of the Moors began on Sunday, October 10th. At 1.30pm, Mouncy and Tauber took David and Maureen and drove to the Moors. They went to Woodhead, as they believed that was a possible burial location, since in Brady's disposal plan, he had written WH. When they got there, mounsey gave david a selection of photographs he had picked out that he believed were possible pointers to burial sites david studied them then passed them to maureen to see if she recognized something but neither of them were able to point out a specific place so police started searching randomly mounsey was determined to find john as we know john had been nicknamed mounsey's lad by officers at ashton Underline police station He notified John's family about the discovery of his name in Brady's notebook. Mounsey spent countless hours searching the moor. He was trying to match the photos to the specific spot they had been taken, but it was no easy task, given the 400 square mile area. His wife barely saw him during this period. The afternoon of Sunday, October 10th, Hindley went to see her gran who was staying with Nellie and Nellie's new lover, Bill. Nellie had separated from Hindley's father, Bob, Despite being at the house during the murder, and at other times when Brady and Hindley were cleaning up after previous murders, Grant said she knew nothing. Hindley's father Bob didn't want anything to do with either her or Maureen because they knew about Nellie's affair with Bill and didn't tell him. On Monday morning, October 11th, Hindley met Robert Fitzpatrick, Brady's solicitor. She told him she went along with what Brady said about Edward. After this meeting, police tried to question Hindley again but she sat in silence and refused to say anything. At the moors, police were highlighting areas of interest with yellow paint. Mounsey went through five negatives he had found that he believed would point to at least one burial site. A mass search was organised that involved all police forces in the area. Inspector John Chaddick from Upper Mill, the largest village in Saddleworth, was brought over to help since he knew the area well. At 12.15pm that afternoon, Tyrrell and Mounsey questioned Brady about two of the missing children, John Kilbride and Keith Bennett. When Mounsey kept pressing Brady about John, Brady said, I've read about him, I think, but I don't know anything of him. The two detectives then focused on Brady's disposal plan and two specific words that appeared on the sheets of paper, periodically unmoved. They asked if this term worked as a reminder to check that the burial sites hadn't been touched. Brady shrugged at them and said, It's only to do with Evans. At 3pm that afternoon, Hindley was charged for being an accessory to Edwards' murder. Hindley said she had nothing to say until she saw Brady's solicitor. Hindley was escorted out of the interrogation room and into a tiled cell in the basement where her mugshot was taken. She was then taken back upstairs to have her fingerprints done. A policewoman told her she should confess because it wasn't worth sacrificing herself for a man. Hindley kept looking forward and didn't say a thing. Brady was questioned extensively for the rest of that afternoon. At one point Mounsey said to him, I don't think you have feelings at all. The only feelings you have got are for your dog. We'll destroy your dog and maybe you'll realise what it's like to lose something you love. Brady remained silent. Mounsey stood up. And as he was leaving the room he called brady a bastard before slamming the door shut the interview ended at 8 p.m and brady was driven to risley remand center 50 kilometers west of hyde police station hindley was driven to risley remand center as well in a different car they were both placed in separate rooms from other inmates word was already out that they were being investigated for the murders of children and there were a few inmates who wanted to get their hands on them on tuesday morning october 12th a prison officer handed hindley a letter from brady in the letter brady told her he would be given life imprisonment and he wouldn't be able to bear it so he wanted her to be brave like emmy goering the former wife of Hermann goering who had been a leading member of the nazi party emmy had hosted many nazi events and dubbed herself the first lady of the third reich in 1946, Herman was going to be hanged, but instead, he took cyanide and committed suicide. Brady was telling Hindley he would have the same destiny and that after he was dead, his influence on her would ease and she'd be able to begin a new life without him. On the last line, he wrote he loved her, in German. Hindley asked the governor at Riesley if she could see Brady before their first court appearance and her request was granted. They met in a room where they were separated by a sheet of glass, brady was wearing the suit he was arrested in and smiled when he saw hindley was in prison clothes she said she was saving her clothes for court brady told her to visit risley's library to keep her mind off things before asking her if she was able to get rid of the receipt for the suitcases stored at the luggage department in manchester central railway station hindley shook her head and said she wasn't able to go back for it because police had been guarding the house the entire time The receipt for the luggage storage hadn't been found, but police had found a receipt for the rental of a white Ford, registration number 9275ND, on November 23, 1963, the same day John Kilbride disappeared. Head of Manchester City Police, John Tyrrell, got together with the head of Cheshire County, Arthur Benfield, and the head of Lancashire County. They compared their missing person files and looked for possible links to Brady and Hindley. They initially came up with 12 cases, which they narrowed down to eight. Those eight included John Kilbride, Keith Bennett, Pauline Reed, and Leslie Ann Downey. At the moors, officers were searching by pushing sticks into the ground. They would then sniff the end of the sticks, and if the end smelled of putrefaction, they'd know there was a body in that spot. They were also able to identify a few of the locations in the photographs, but no bodies were found in those spots. Reporters heard about the search and they started arriving in large numbers. The Manchester Evening News posted two articles that day. One headlined, Police in Mystery Dig on moors," and the other, Forensic Men Comb Terraced House of Secrets. At 16 Wardlebrook Avenue, forensic experts went through the house and found blood on the skirt, coat and shoes Hindley had worn the night of Edward's murder. At 11.25am on Thursday, October 14th, Mounsey and Tyrrell visited Risley Remand Centre and questioned Hindley again. Mounsey, I've been told you visited Ashton Market regularly for over two years, particularly on Saturday afternoons, and it was there that John Kilbride was last seen. Hindley, that's not true. Mounsey, a girl called Leslie Ann Downey, who is 10, has been missing from her home since Boxing Day last year. She was last seen on a fairground off Hume Hall Lane in Manchester, about half past five in the evening. Hindley stared at Mounsey for a moment before asking, What are you suggesting? Mounsey, Do you know anything about her disappearance? Hindley, I don't know anything about her. I've never been near a fairground. After questioning Hindley, Mounsey and Tyrrell moved on to Brady. They showed him some of the pictures and asked him where they were taken. He did name some of the spots. They then asked him about the allegations David had made about Brady bragging about other murders and burying the bodies on the moor. Brady didn't respond. That same day, Hindley wrote a letter to Elsie Masterton, her neighbour at Wardlebrook Avenue, to ask her to take care of Puppet. Elsie contacted the police immediately, not because of the letter, but because she realised her 11 year old daughter Patty had gone with Brady and Hindley to the moor several times, and she might be able to help them in their search. At 1.30pm on Friday, October 15th, two detectives picked up Patty from school and drove her to the moor. Paddy told them to drive through Greenfield, past the Clarence pub, go round the last bend, and stop at the sign. Paddy then pointed at the rocks of Holland Brown Knoll. She told detectives this is the spot Brady and Hindley always took her to. One of the detectives grabbed a map and saw that Wessenden Head was only a few kilometres away from this spot and maybe that was the WH Brady was referring to in his disposal plans. At 3pm that afternoon, the search was moved from Woodhead to Holland Brown Knoll. The spots are 20 kilometres away from each other. Three buses filled with officers, along with five police cars, arrived at Holland Brown Knoll, and they marked certain places to be searched the following day. As she was driven home, Paddy told the detectives two more things. She said she spent hours with Hindley sitting in the car while Brady was in the moors carrying a spade, and that she remembered visiting the exact spot she had just pointed out on Christmas Day 1964, one day before Leslie Ann Downey's disappearance. That afternoon, Mounsey arrived at Holland Brown Nile and took out some of the photographs. He realised that the black rocks in the area matched the ones in some of the photos that had caught his attention. He felt they were in the right spot. Meanwhile, Detectives Carr and Fairley questioned David again. David complained he had already told them everything he knew, but at one point, as he was going through the same story, he mentioned Brady had a thing for railway stations. This last comment resonated with Carr. At Hyde Police Station, Benfield was shouting, wanting to wrap the entire investigation up, as to him, the only victim was Edward Evans, and they already had not only his killer, but a person acting as an accessory to his murder. As far as he was concerned, the investigation was done. But Carr didn't listen. He made calls to different railway stations and asked each place to check their luggage departments. While he was in his office making these calls, Benfield was screaming at Mounsey that he had only one more day to search them all. Then that was it. It was over. But one hour later, everything changed. Carr found the suitcases. In response to a call made from Carr, an officer from the British Transport Police found Brady suitcases in Manchester Central Railway Station's luggage storage. The officer opened one of Brady's suitcases and described what he found. I opened one. There were all sorts of things inside. German books, pornographic magazines, a gun, a knife, a cosh and there was a tape. A reel-to-reel tape. We played a bit of it, I don't know what it was, but there was a little girl crying for her mum. We switched it off. It was terrible. Carr didn't tell Benfield of his discovery at first because he didn't trust him. Benfield was still screaming that it was all a big waste of time and they needed to move on. Carr went to Manchester Central and collected the suitcases and took them back to Hyde Police Station. Carr and Fairley went through the contents. They found photographs of a little girl in all of them she had a scarf pulled tightly around her face and she wasn't wearing anything other than socks and shoes they knew hindley and brady weren't going anywhere so they decided to call it a night and go back through the contents more thoroughly the next day they didn't know who the girl was in the photos and identifying her would be their number one priority they didn't have to wait long fairly went to Carr's house for dinner that night after dinner they watched tv and a photograph of Leslie Ann Downey appeared on the screen as part of a special broadcast about the case. They had just identified the girl in Brady's suitcase. Carr revealed his findings the next morning. All of the senior detectives from the different jurisdictions argued that they should take possession of the suitcases and lead the investigation, but Benfield was having none of it. He suddenly changed his tune and declared he was in charge because his officers had found the suitcases and Brady and Hindley were in his custody. The suitcases were searched more thoroughly. Inside the blue suitcase, there were the following books. The Antisex. Sexual Anomalies and Perversions. Cradle of Erotica. The Sex Jungle. The Jewel in the Lotus. Confessions of a Mask. Death Rides a Camel. Werewolf in Paris. The Perfumed Garden. Sexus. Paris Vision 28. Satin Legs and Stilettos. High heels and stockings. The life and ideals of Marquis de Sade, which was wrapped up inside a Daily Mirror newspaper. The Kiss of the Whip, The Tropic of Cancer, and another book wrapped up inside a newspaper. Mein Kampf by Adolf Hitler. There were also soft porn magazines, notes, papers, an insurance and a tax form of Brady's, string, adhesive tape, a communion belt, a library ticket in the name of David Smith's father bullets, a black wig, and a diary belonging to Brady from that year, 1965. Inside the brown suitcase, there was another diary that belonged to Brady from 1962, Hindley's diary from 1964, Brady's birth certificate, letters between Brady and Hindley, more pornographic magazines, a notebook that belonged to Brady, a key on a shoelace, another key wrapped up in a cloth, a box that had a cosh inside as well as a black mask, another cosh that had the word Eureka written on it. Two knives, one of which was a Nazi SS knife, a study on Jack the Ripper, a pamphlet on family planning that was addressed to Hindley's old house on Bannock Street, but to another woman. 54 photo negatives, 55 photo prints, and two tapes. A reel-to-reel tape recorder was brought into the office, and the detectives started playing the tapes. The first one kicked off with Brady chanting German then marching music followed with a goon sketch followed with a talk about hitler from the bbc program any questions and then suddenly the last track started with the loud scream of leslie ann downey pat clayton an officer who worked closely with mounsey said this about the tape i heard the tape many many times and it was probably more horrendous the more you heard it the more you could understand what was being said it got worse Detective Carr returned home that night, sat on a chair, and started crying. He said, I thought about the little girl's voice on the tape and about how I would feel if that had been my daughter. Hindley was a willing partner in the atrocities that were taking place. According to Benfield, that same day was supposed to be the last day of the search on the moors, Saturday, October 16th, 1965. The rest of the police forces had given up on finding anything, then mouncy started searching early believing he'd find john he said my boy's up there mouncy organized a group of 12 people from ashton underline with a few more joining in from a neighboring station robert spears one of the officers who was searching kept looking up at the hills that were nearby he had a feeling there was something there but he didn't say anything and he kept on searching where he was told At midday, Mounsey left the moors and another detective was put in charge of the search. At 2.30pm, he called the search off and they started packing up. Spears realised that if he wanted to go with his gut, it was now or never. He decided to go up the hill. When he got there, he was unable to see much because of a heavy mist. As he was heading back, he saw a sort of pond with something white sticking out of it. He went in to take a better look but couldn't make out what it was, so he grabbed a stick and poked. The water was too dirty to see anything properly, but there was an overpowering smell. He ran back to meet up with the rest of the officers and told the detective in charge that he went up the hill to take a piss and he had found something. Spears grabbed a rod and headed back up the hill. The detective in charge started following after him with the rest of the team, all of them grumbling, until Spears showed them what he called... white withering thing that stuck out of the water the officers started digging to drain the pond as they were doing so the detective in charge told spears he was an idiot and they should have been heading back by now but instead they were stuck there for what was probably a sheep it wasn't the white withering thing as described by spears was the mutilated forearm of a child along with it the officers came upon a tartan skirt buckled shoes and of the remains of a body there was one photographer left at the scene and he had seen the movement of the officers he asked what they'd found they told him it was just the sheep but the photographer kept hanging around the officers didn't want the news out just yet so they created a diversion they split up into two groups the first group piled into a van and drove back to ashton underline the photographer followed them the second group stayed hidden inside a second van, waiting until the photographer was gone. They then called Mounsey from the Clarence pub and told him what they'd found. Mounsey drove back to the moor and Spears took him to the spot. Mounsey called for pathologists and for lighting and tents. The pathologists who attended the scene were Professor Cyril Polson, head of forensic medicine at Leeds University, and his colleague David G, who would later become the head pathologist in the Yorkshire Ripper case. They had found the body of Leslie Ann Downey. She had her clothes piled on top of her face. There was the blue coat, the pink cardigan, the tartan skirt, socks, shoes, and white plastic beads from the necklace her brother won for her. G noted that the skeleton remains of the left arm, which was the arm Spears had seen, was extended above her head and the hand was missing. The right arm was beneath the body, and both of her legs were flexed to meet her head, just how Brady had instructed David Smith to tie Edward up. Her entire body was naked, and one of the detectives at the scene was surprised at the fact that half her body was perfectly preserved, and half of it was unrecognisable. In his own words, one half was destroyed, no features, nothing. Leslie's body was transported to the mortuary in Upper Mill. The post-mortem was conducted by G, Polson and a third pathologist. G concluded smothering was Leslie's cause of death. Leslie's mother, Anne, was brought in to identify her body. Upon seeing her, Anne said, for some reason the sheet had been drawn up to hide the right side of her torso and face. She looked beautiful. She seemed to be asleep. Her dark curly hair spilled out over the protective sheet. I winced as I saw the swelling around her lips. It was as if she had bitten hard on them. Leslie lay so silently. She had always been a quiet girl, but this silent stillness was something I had not experienced before. This was the absolute and final stillness of death. My Leslie was dead. I knew it now. I knew it, but could not accept it. Anne asked to touch Leslie or to take a lock of her hair with her. But she wasn't allowed to. When she got home, the press was waiting for her. Robert Spears found out about the body's identity from the news. He said he couldn't sleep that night and added, quote, I couldn't get the side of the hill and the protruding bone out of my mind. I couldn't forget the smell. Once we'd drained the hollow, death has a smell, and on the moor, it was distinct. During that weekend, David Smith was out with his father when they stopped at a newsstand and saw the headline, "Body Found on Moor. It was then that everything became an actual reality to David, and he realised Brady hadn't been drunkenly blubbing all those nights. He'd actually killed several times and buried his victims on the moor, just like he said he had. Meanwhile, the police prepared themselves to re-interview Brady and Hindley about Leslie Ann Downey to be continued.